Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the wonderful time of worship we've already experienced. And God, as we open your word, speak to our hearts. God, may we be attentive, may we be focused. And Lord, whatever it is we need to do in the next few minutes to come into or to improve our relationship with you, give us the courage and the strength to do it. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Reggie. Wasn't that great? Okay, y'all been sitting for just a second. Stand back up. We're going to look at some good stuff tonight. It's not about tithing or hell. So I want to get you warmed up just in case you do get a little enthusiasm. Say amen. Amen. Say preach on. Preach on. Ooh, I like that. You can, be, you can sit down. You know, there may be a reason over the last 28 years I haven't heard that much, but I'll let my psychologist and I figure that out at some point. The word magnificent, the word magnificent means uh, sublime or supreme or top shelf noble. And if you think about magnificent, you know, there's not a lot of things that truly are magnificent. There are some things. There are some artworks. I think you'd have to say the Mona Lisa through the years has proven itself to be magnificent. The, the uh, Michelangelo's Pita, you would have to say it's magnificent. The Taj Mahal, the Cowboys getting knocked out of the playoffs by the Redskins two weeks ago. You'd have to say that's sub- superb, wouldn't you? Thank you. My little granddaughter's not here, I hope, because she she's over the kids. She didn't want me to say that tonight, but parents rule, right? We're starting a series tonight out of the book of Hebrews, and this is going to be, uh, I can't promise it's going to be a great series, but it sure is a great book. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's 13 chapters, and it says uh, to Hebrews. Now, what does that mean? What What is... Uh, uh, it, it, mean, it means it's a letter that was written to Hebrew or Jewish people uh, originally. And it's about the superiority, the magnificentness of Jesus Christ. That's the, the theme of the book. And the key word in these 13 chapters is the word better. In fact, it's used 13 times to describe that Christ is better than the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament law, that he's better than angels, that he's better than Moses. We don't know for sure when Hebrews was written. There's a lot of mystery around the book. It was possibly written between A.D. 60 and 70, uh, you know, 30, 25, 30 years after Jesus' death and, and resurrection, probably in that time. And we don't know who wrote, God used to write the book of Hebrews. Now, it's interesting, if you have a King James or some translations, you might turn to it, and in the very first chapter, in chapter 1, it will say uh, the, the epistle uh, of Paul to the Hebrews. Well, that, you got to remember, that part of the Bible was written by man, okay? How many of you have a study Bible? You realize when you go down to the study notes, that is man's word at that point, correct? Do you, do you understand that? Okay. Uh, the inspiration and the perfectness is found in between. Uh, it, it's in the text of the, the Scripture. We don't know for sure who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. It may have been Paul. It may have been Apollo. It may have been Barnabas. It was, it was obviously a person who was very intelligent. It was a person who had a, an understanding of the Jewish people and the Jewish life. And we know ultimately more than anything else that it was written by God. Now, let's dive in tonight. 
in verses 1 through 3. And let's begin with this, what it says. God spoke to us through the prophets. God has spoken to us through the prophets. Now, if you're taking notes, you might write in parentheses, the prophets, his servants. Because that's going to be important in just a moment. God spoke to us through the prophets, his servants. Verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Again, originally this letter was, was written to Hebrew people, Jewish people, primarily uh, Jewish people, Christians who were struggling with understanding who Jesus Christ was and, and ironing out their theology. And he begins with the way they would understand God's spoken to us through the prophets. Now, if you read much or biblical literature, the, uh, the Jewish people referred to Moses as a prophet. Now, a lot of times I wouldn't think of Moses as a prophet. But they considered anyone that God used to give them scripture was a prophet. It says God spoke to us uh, through the prophets in many times and in various ways. If you've read the Old Testament much, you know God spoke in a lot of different ways, didn't he? He, he, uh, he, made a, he made a pretty good statement with the flood, didn't he? I, in fact, I, I thought we were going there this morning again uh, for, for a while. But God spoke through a burning bush, didn't he? He spoke uh, through a st- uh, still small voice to Elijah. He spoke to Isaiah in the temple through a vision. Uh, he spoke in a lot of different ways. But the bottom line was that God spoke. And God gave the prophets words to give the people. Now, that's very important. This very week, I came across an article. It was written by a University of Chicago professor who has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Now, folks, I want to tell you when, you, when you watch the History Channel or Discovery or when you read something on the Internet and somebody claims to be a Bible scholar, even if they have a Ph.D. from Harvard, let some red flags go up as you begin to read them. Read them with discernment. Here's what this Bible scholar said. Actually, as I've studied the Bible, and I'm sure that's how he talks, God speaks very little through the Bible. It's very seldom in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, does God ever speak. And I am, I am screaming. I'm sure Brenda's thinking, what's going on with that nut back there? But I'm, scre- you know, I'm screaming at my computer. What is this guy saying? God spoke very little through the Scriptures. I read another article about two days later. Uh, are you familiar with the red letter Movement. Have you, any of y'all heard of that? Okay. How many of you have a Bible where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a lot of red letters in there? Okay. That is, uh, I, I have a lot of my Bibles have that. Those are, uh, the red letters are the words of Christ that we believe Christ specifically said. Now, that's, that's great, but here's the problem with that. It can sometimes undermine the rest of the Bible as not being what God said. Do you see a problem with that? And see, God, God said it all. And, and Tony Campolo, the man who uh, says a lot of good things, but who is behind this red-letter movement, that they've started a the movement. I've even heard of people having Bible studies with this here in Ruston where they talk about, well, the most important part of the Bible is what Jesus said. And you can come to some logical conclusions there, can't you? Well, if Jesus said it, it's got to be the most important. Tony Campolo said in the future there will be red-letter churches that that in fact, that all that they will talk about or focus on will be on the words of Jesus Christ. God said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke to us through the prophets. 
It didn't say God seldom spoke in the Bible. It said God spoke through the prophets. It didn't just say God spoke in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It said God spoke in the prophets. If you're taking notes, write these down. 2 Timothy 3.16, it's a verse everybody ought to know. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, folks, I believe with all my heart that is talking about the New Testament. But did you know primarily what that would have been, including when that was written 2,000 years ago? The Old Testament. All scriptures God breathed. Folks, God breathed it all is what that's saying. And, and in my opinion, God has never breathed or given us anything that was flawed or imperfect. Amen? Now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 are very important verses too. Listen to what he says. Above all, in other words, you've got to get this right. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, we're not just getting what some guy thought up or said. And in the next verse, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but from who? But, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or led by the Holy Spirit. Folks, what that's saying is, is that from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 to the end of the book, man, this is the Word of God. God just didn't speak occasionally. This is God's Word. Isn't that good news? Okay, now here's the second thing he said. Not only has God spoken perfectly through the prophets, but God's spoken perfectly through His Son. Now, I've gotten parentheses in my notes that, that this was a family member. God spoke through the prophets, his servants, and then God came along in the last days, is what it's fixing to say, and he spoke through his family member, his wonderful and his beautiful son. Verse 2. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. By his son. Now, you hear the last days. What comes to your mind? Armageddon, 666, uh, uncovering who that is. Folks, actually, the last days began with the, the, when, when Jesus kicked things off. Did you know that? The, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ began the last day. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And, and, and that's not, that shouldn't confuse you and think somebody's messed up. It gets messed up when the guy on TV says, We entered the last day five years ago and give money to my ministry and we will help Christ come back earlier. <laughs> We entered the last days 2,000 years ago is what the Scripture says. And it says at this time that God spoke to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, folks, here's something that's important. The Bible, Genesis 1-1, the first verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, the last verse in the Bible in that chapter, are all the Word of God, okay? It doesn't get any more accurate as you go through the Bible, but what the Bible is, it's what we call progressive revelation. In other words, if you read Genesis 1 to 9, and then you go home and you read through the New Testament this next week, you're going to know more about God when you complete the New Testament than you did just by reading the Old Testament. Does that make sense? The Old Testament's not any less true than the New Testament, but the Bible is what we call progressive revelation. In other words, God reveals himself, and then ultimately and finally through Jesus Christ in the New Testament, perfectly and clearly. That's great news. God's shown us a complete revelation, we're going to see, of himself through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, here's something that we're going to spend some time on tonight. Who is this Jesus? 2,000 years ago, that was what these Jewish Christians were really struggling with. And certainly some who were not Christians, they were trying to figure out who was Jesus Christ. 
Who is this guy? And verse 2 and 3, if you were to go home and spend the next week really studying these, these are some of the greatest verses in the Bible about Jesus Christ and, and who he is. Here's the first thing it tells us. Jesus Christ is the heir to all things. Jesus Christ is the heir to all things. In verse 2 it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Heir means it, it's, it's going to be his. Now, folks, Jesus Christ didn't become heir to everything. He didn't get the right to inherit everything uh, at his baptism or at his crucifixion or at his resurrection. He was appointed the heir of everything from the very beginning. And to say that someone is an heir is not only a title of dignity, but it's a, it's a wonderful honor. And, and it's a tremendous thing to say, well, you know, if you knew somebody that had $100 million and they said you're going to be the heir to that someday, that's a good thing. Amen? It really is, especially if you tithe. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. And the Bible says Jesus Christ has been appointed the heir to all things. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it's a bad verse. It's a true verse. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You know, folks, the, the, the devil is the prince of the world. He's the God, little God of this age, isn't he? But here's the bottom line, folks. When all is said and done someday, the devil is going to spend eternity not ruling over hell, but burning in hell. And Jesus Christ is going to spend eternity reigning over it all. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Who is Jesus, man? He is the heir to everything that is to come. What a great thing. And it even gets better, in my opinion. Not only is the heir, Jesus is the creator of everything. In verse 2, he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. To the word made there means to perform or to do something. And it's interesting, the word universe there certainly means the, the, the cosmos. It means the world's the planet, but it really means the ages. In other words, Jesus was there when everything was kicked off from the very beginning. A wonderful little verse is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, talking about the, the creation of the world. Listen to what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image. How many of you have read that verse many times? Do you, do you notice the plural there? Now, was God meeting with a committee of Baptists that night? <laughs> he hadn't created Baptists yet. Folks, that's, the, that's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit right there. Let us make man in our own image. Folks, Jesus Christ who came, who was born in a, a barn, who lived a rough life, who died on the cross who arose to conquer death, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. Antonio Flew was a philosopher and an atheist for many years, and Dr. Flew was known for his argue, arguing against the existence of God, that any intelligent scientist, philosopher could not believe in God. And then in 2004, he did a very interesting thing. He came back out of the blue and said, I believe there is a God. In fact, he wrote a book later on entitled, There is a God. And here was his philosophy. He said, you know, the more I have studied the universe, the more I have studied everything, there is absolutely no way that there could have been a bang and just randomly all this thing could have happened. There's just no way that that could have happened. Amen to that. And it didn't happen. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit 
spoke the creation into being. Isn't that awesome? Our Jesus Christ is the heir of everything, and he is the creator of everything. Now, here's the third thing. It says he is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. That word radiance is a wonderful word. It means the brightness. It, it, it means the shining glory of God the Father. The word glory there is a beautiful Greek word. We get our word doxology from that word. You, you've been in church much. You've heard the word doxology. It means brilliance or splendor or excellence. Now, folks, here's what's neat. This letter was probably written 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And there had undoubtedly been people who were reading this who had seen Jesus Christ. And here's what he told them. He said, folks, when you saw Jesus Christ, you saw the Shekinah glory of God the Father. You go, well, man, I didn't live then. I know, I know you didn't. But you know, when you read the Word of God and you see Jesus revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and through the New Testament... You're seeing the glory of God. The glory of God shines forth from Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? And here's something else he says. Man, you're talking about some good theology and some deep things to chew on. He is the exact representation of the Father. In verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Folks, the, the picture here is if you were to have a die, a, a die that you use to, to, uh, to, to make a coin with, and that die had the imprint, let's say, of John F. Kennedy. And we know what John F. Kennedy looked like. We have pictures and portraits and people still alive that knew what he looked like. When they make that coin that looks like John F. Kennedy, they have a standard or a die. They have the, they have the, the copy that they used to make that impression, and that is a likeness of him, and that likeness goes out on those coins that, that bear his impression. And what this is saying is that Jesus Christ, he is the impression, the literal impression of God. We get our word character from that word being, that Greek word being there. And, it, and what it's saying is that Jesus Christ, inwardly and outwardly, folks, he is the exact representation of God the Father. When I was growing up, I don't know about you, but my view was this. God the Father in the Old Testament was kind of scary. He's kind of mean at times. And Jesus was sweet and loving. I saw him as pretty distinct people. I saw one of them was my daddy and one of them was my mama, basically, growing up. But see, that was incorrect. Because to see God is to see Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God. Read that last part with me. And the Word was God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh, the Word is Jesus, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Can you imagine these people hearing and thinking about this and swallowing this? My goodness, Jesus of Nazareth, this was God. He is, we don't understand that he was the son of God and he is God. Folks, when you look at Jesus Christ and you read your Bible, you say, what's God like? I want to know what's God's like. Read your Bible. And when you understand who Jesus was, you understand who God is. Because the Bible says he is the exact representation of the Father. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? 
Here's the fifth thing it tells us here. He is the sustainer of everything. He is the sustainer of the universe, of the world, of all things. You know, people were worried about, well, a, a comet's going to hit the world and going to blow us up. Or, or you, you know, everybody that's normal has a little fear of an atomic bomb, some nut getting a, an atomic bomb and blowing up half the world. The Bible says Jesus is carrying the world. How many of you are familiar with the fictitious atlas? You know who Atlas was? I think we have a picture of Atlas. Uh, Atlas has the world on his shoulders there. And, you know, when I first read this, Jesus is the sustainer of the world and all things. You kind of get that picture that, well, Jesus is kind of grudgingly and hard. You know, he's squatting the world. He, you know, he's, he's holding it up. You know, it's tough at times, but he's holding it up. That's not what sustain there means. To sustain means to, to see something through to the end. In other words, here's what this tells us, folks. And it says he does this by his power. And, and the word power, his powerful word power there, we get our English word dynamite, which means it's an, an inherent power. And, and what this is saying, it's saying, folks, that, that come hell or high water, Jesus Christ is holding it all together. Okay? And God's got a plan for this world and this universe and for you and me. And no politician and no government, no nut, no individual is ever going to thwart that. Isn't that great? That God, God's not just holding the world up. God is, he's holding it in his hand, and he's going to see it through to the end. And that end involves, there's going to be a great separation. Many are going to go to heaven, and a lot more going to hell. And then he's going to reign forever. But never forget, it's not Republicans or Democrats, Americans, uh, Russians that are holding the world in their hand. It's Jesus Christ who is sustaining things, and will see it through to the end. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? Pretty good stuff. Here's the next thing. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. How many of you are sinners tonight? I'm not even going to look. I'm afraid some of you will lie. Verse 3. And he provided purification for sins. He provided purification. That word purification means removal. It means he... He took care of the guilt and the stain of sin. Now, now, folks, everybody in here, if you're not a Christian, you're a lost sinner. If you're a Christian, you're a saved sinner. And we all deal with guilt, don't we? We all deal, unless you're a psychopath. And, and you, we all deal with the stain and the, the burdens of things we've done that we wish we hadn't have done. Here's what this passage says. If we'll let him... Man, Jesus took care of sins. And, and how is he the perfect sacrifice? He's the perfect sacrifice in two ways. First of all, there, there couldn't be a better sacrifice for sin. Think about this. The creator of the universe came to die for creation. You ever thought about that? The sinless one came to die for the sinner. Folks, there couldn't have been a better sacrifice for our sins. In the Old Testament, they got ready to sacrifice an animal. It needed to be one without blemish. It needed to be one with, without deformities. And when, when, when it came to this ultimate sacrifice for our sin, there couldn't have been one better. But here's a great thing, too. Jesus perfectly paid for, the sins of, paid for our sins. Now, guys, there's nothing else that has to be done for you to be forgiven except confess your sins and receive the forgiveness. 
No, no amount of penance, no amount of giving your money or giving your time, no amount of beating yourself up or kicking yourself for your sins or your wrongs going to do it. Folks, when Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the sinless one, went to the cross and he died for your sins, he did everything that was ever going to have to be done for your sins and mine. Isn't that great? We sing a beautiful song. Jesus paid it all to, 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 all to him I owe. That, folks, that's exactly right. When Jesus died, he didn't die partially for, for half your sins or my sins. He paid the price for all of our sins. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the last thought this evening is he holds the most esteemed position today. Folks, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God. He was God in the beginning. But they also know he left heaven. He came to earth. He was a baby. He lived as a commoner, a poor person, died a horrible death. Then he walks out of the tomb. And today he sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father. At the end of verse 3, it says, After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, what does it mean that he sat down in heaven? I think it means two things. That when he sat down, his work was perfectly and complete. It was perfect and complete. Now, if you're an Old Testament Jewish person reading this, the sacrificial system still in place, they knew the priest worked all the time. The priest had to continually offer sacrifice for the sins. The priest didn't see it. The priest was constantly moving and doing and doing and doing. Folks, when Jesus went back to heaven, it was settled. He sat down not because he was tired. He sat down because it was done. It was finished. But he also sits at the right hand of the Father today because the right hand is the most honored position there is. Folks, in 2,000 years ago, uh, most people were right-handed. Most people were right-handed. How many of you are right-handed tonight? Maybe a better question is, how many of you are left-handed? Okay, that's awesome. I wish I was ambidextrous. I'm not going to preach with both hands, but I'm right-handed. And, and so most societies, then and now, when you talk about the right hand, that was the natural position of power, of strength. But also the right hand was, was the picture of, of authority. When you call someone your right-hand person, your right-hand man, your right-hand woman, you're saying, they're my number one. They're my number one. And folks, when Jesus paid the price for our sins and when he went back to heaven, he came to this earth as a humble servant. But you don't forget today, he sits on the throne of heaven as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So I want to ask you this evening, how will we respond tonight to this Jesus? You know, man, he deserves a response, doesn't he? He really does. I mean, really, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to manipulate you to do anything, but sometimes it seems like we give an invitation, we just stand and we sing a verse, and then we go, when's this going to be over, and when it's over, ready to go. And maybe it's not coming forward tonight. Maybe it's right where you're standing, but you need to just say, God, man, Jesus, Wow. You're awesome. If you're not a Christian, the way you respond to that is you give your life to him tonight. Come and do that. Join the church if you want to. We'll be ready to help you with that. But Christian, maybe where you're standing, maybe at the altar, 
on your knees or on your face or praying with a minister. You just want to say, Jesus, man, I love you. And I want to spend the rest of my life loving you and lifting you up because you truly are magnificent. Let's stand. And as God leads you, you respond now.